It's been a long time. Shouldn't have left you <laughs> without a dope beat to step two. Step two. For sure, for sure. No, like, here's the thing. It's been a long time. And obviously, we've all been suffering, like, in silence through this pandemic together. And we wanted to, to deliver a sports theme like we normally do. But then we realized, you know, this pandemic thing is it, just, just too big. You know, it's just too big to ignore. It's kind of what everybody's thinking about right now anyway, right? So why not just kind of deliver what the people really want? So, <laughs> Do they want more <laughs> pandemic stuff? I don't they don't know. want more pandemics. They don't want more virus for sure. I mean, hey, we're, we've been flattening that curve the past few days. Right? We have. California's mm-hmm. done a great job. Uh, we're heading in the right direction. But yeah, there's still we're... a lot of unknown out there. And that's what we want to bring this. a lot of unknown. Yeah, we're trying yeah. to bring this episode to the masses to help with uh, preparing for that unknown. Um, so yeah. today, today we have we have Dr. Ramey Eunice joining us again, an infectious disease fellow at University of California Irvine, killing the game. That's our end. So she's going to give us a brief update on all things COVID, or, or tell us just a little bit about what's what may happen in the future, in the near future, in the distant future. And then Arm and I are just going to talk a little bit about how to cope with it. Like you, I know. Why, but why are we why are we fronting? Why are we fronting like this isn't a whole new format? I mean, these people, like we've been talking to them for the past several months, you know, since July of 2019. They've never seen our faces before. <laughs> and here we are. And we're yeah. just going to what skip over that. Like, like that's not. See, that's thing. why I like I got to be careful touching my face. You know, you can't hide now. Yeah, we got to put our faces out there. Obviously, Armin and I are we're doing our part. We're social distancing. So he's at his place. I'm at mine. And. We're going to make it work. Normally we're in the same room, just, you know, whatever, like running our mouths, trying to figure this thing out. But I mean, since we did talk about like, I think we even made recommendations for social distancing during our our previous episode in which we we talked about, you know, the pandemic uh, and the psychology of pandemics. So we'd be pretty remiss to not you following that yeah practice what you preach baby we'll get into that i want to hear from you about what uh what you've been doing to cope with all this but should we bring in our guest now already so soon now you know what she's dying to she's dying to talk to before we get into that before we get into that real quick we're gonna have a tom brady episode coming up and a michael jordan episode because you know that documentary is coming out everyone knows brady recently went to the buccaneers so we'll be talking about that as well but before but what's on everyone's mind hot yeah. Here we are. We're getting close to the middle of April. So I feel like, I mean, we're California. So we started hardcore social distancing and like stay at home order stuff. What, like, would you say second week of March? March 19th. Wow. The third week. Okay. So we're really only like three weeks in to this, you know? Yeah, and our um, Mayor Garcetti, LA Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti, just extended the stay at home until May fifteenth. So we <laughs> we still have over a month left. It's been, and it's yeah, and it's like this has been really an unprecedented turn of events. I mean, like I talked to people in their you know sixties, seventies, eighties, family members of mine, people I, I know well, and like I haven't met or, or talked to a single person about this tragedy who can recall a time in their life, in their past, when things were like this, when, you know, the streets were just like 
like there, you know, like places like Times Square, you know, in New York City or, or just like ghost towns. And it, it's, it's almost unthinkable how, how things have, have turned out. And like, of course, the economy is already starting to, to show uh, signs of it's heading into a recession. And I mean, here we are with now the, the leading country in total number of coronavirus cases. I mean, we talked before, I think we were just getting started. China was still leading the way considerably. Now we're on top um, by, at least in terms of total number of cases, a wide margin, total number of deaths, a significant margin. You know, and it's like, wow, man, like, how did we get here? (laughs) Yeah. And I I just like 16.7 million lost jobs. So and that's just in the U.S. So a lot of things are happening and it's going to take a while for things to get back to normal or or maybe a new normal. Um, Yeah, no, you know, I I, I was talking to um, some folks from New York City, people that are are very aware of, you know, like another really important tragedy, of course, you know, the 9-11 tragedy. And these people um, were actually pretty close to the World Trade Center site, like to ground zero, like when it all went down you know, that's fresh in their minds. And even those people um, who live through that, they're just kind of shook by this particular event. One, because like, I remember a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at this. Oh, look at me, I'm touching my face. <laughs> um, no, but- It's okay, you watched ago, your hands. We were looking at this and we were like, man, like, could this surpass the World Trade Center in terms of number of deaths? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's hard to imagine because you know that that event you know had such a a major ripple effect on you know on our country and how we did things and to think that we're actually dealing with an event that's affected even more people right um in new york city alone that's that's wild man. it's unlike anything we've ever seen um it's impacted the sports arena unlike anything that's ever happened and this is coming right after the the death of kobe bryant which was also devastating to the sports community but more than that it's uh i was talking to the mother of a patient of mine today and she mentioned that this has reminded her of working on the polio units back in the day when she was a nurse back in the <laughs> 1950s and she she even said that this is unlike that and that was obviously extreme. Thankfully, now we have a vaccine for that. But I mean, I think about polio. I think about FDR, like, you know, presidents from what feels like ancient history, you know, like he was like leading the country during the the Great Mm -hmm. Depression, right? Yeah. I mean, here's here's the thing. So there are things that we, you know, and and Dr. Jonas was going to join us and talk about this. But, you know, stuff that we were talking about and kind of like projecting uh, during that last pandemic episode, you know, I've certainly come to pass at this point. Um, and, you know, you're looking at the situation now, there's a couple of things that, that you really think about most, right? That just are most, I don't know, pressing when you consider the scale of this thing. Like, how do we get back to where things were, right? Like, that's one, that's one question. Like, how does this, how does that happen, particularly given the fact that there there's no reliable treatment right that that's been established yet and there's no other than social distancing there's no reliable prevention strategy um there's no vaccine for example 
um, nothing really in the in the pipeline. No, so those are things yeah. that aren't going to be coming for months, if not years. I think the main thing, and Dr. Yunus will probably speak to this, is that eventually we have to go back to work, and the virus is still going to be out there. And is it just going to start spreading again, or people are crossing their fingers that hopefully it's seasonal, like we've seen with other <laughs> viruses? But right, like you we know, don't fingers know. crossed, right? Hopefully it's seasonal, you know. But let's bring in the expert real quick and yeah. see what he has to say. Give us a rundown of SARS-CoV-2. I mean, I wish I had a big, uh, you know, juicy scoop for you, but I don't. Give um, us the simple stuff. Is COVID-19 the nickname then? COVID-19 like, is the disease that is caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. Ah, yeah, it's a little, it's a little it's complicated. Yeah. Which is in the class of coronaviruses. Which is in the class of coronaviruses. And I mean, we routinely are exposed to other members of the coronavirus family that cause the common cold and we develop immunity to those, but we can get reinfected because your immunity to the virus that you got can wane. With this, we really have no data on what happens immunologically after we're infected. We do think there is a period of time after you're infected where you're protected, but that can range on the order of weeks to months. I think most infectious disease doctors believe that you probably have immunity on the order of months, but we don't have any data to to definitively put that to rest and to tell you exactly how long you may be immune, or if it's something that your immunity might wane, or you might have lifelong immunity to, we have no data on that. But um, in general, I think that the good news is our social distancing maneuvers are really working. Um, In the hospital, at least in California, we've been seeing a steady trickle of patients coming in. Um, So far, to my knowledge, at least where I work and in some of our other hospitals around me, no big surges, which means that even though it's very tough to stay at home and to not go out and see your friends or your family, we're doing the right thing. And talk about reopening America is really not the right move, to be honest, at this point. I think Mm -hmm. that if we keep this going and keeping in mind, you know, staying at home without working for a lot of people is a privilege. Having these resources to stay at home and to, you know, buy meals and cook food at home is a privilege. A lot of people who've lost their jobs have lost their health insurance. That's been a huge deal because people are less likely to come seeking care if they don't have health insurance. So as a side note, I think that if this doesn't convince you that we need universal health care, I don't know what will. Okay. But, out guns but we don't have to go down that route. So you brought up a lot of good points. I wanted I wanted to ask yeah. you specifically about, you mentioned it's not yet time to reopen America. Is there a timeline you can give us? That's what everyone wants. Everyone wants that. I want it too. I, but I can't tell you. I do think that we're not looking at a few weeks. I think we're looking at a few more months. But beyond that, I really can't say. I do think that once we do reopen things, it'll probably be in a stepwise fashion and we'll probably have to do it piecemeal. Once we start doing that, I do think we will have a little bit of an influx of patients coming into the hospital with COVID, but we'll also start seeing an influx of patients coming in with other non-COVID related stuff that they have been kind of neglecting or not as urgent, like they're not presenting to us as urgently as they would have because of the COVID business. So we'll probably have a big influx of patients coming in for other medical problems. So we should anticipate that. 
Yeah, I've heard different things like stroke admissions are down. Which... Stroke admissions are very down, which is concerning because patients who have a stroke need to come in within a certain window to get anticoagulation for that stroke if it's an, a clot in the brain, if you will. But um... if they're not presenting and stroke rates should not change because of COVID, um, if they're not coming in, then they're having strokes at home and they're not getting the rehab and the treatment that they need early on, which is key for stroke management. So that's a different issue altogether. And I'm sure neurologists would have more to say about that. Dr. Yunus, one thing I'm curious about and have been for quite some time is like, as I track the data, I noticed that New York State and New Jersey, I mean, their infection rates seem to, to just, you know, be incredible compared to every other like major urban center in this country. And then when I in particular, when I kind of compare like the density of infection in New York, which is around like pretty close to 10,000 cases for every 1 million in their population, that's like among the highest in the, in the world for any like major population centers. And yeah. it's, it's, it's odd because, you know, we, you know, we, I guess we were under the impression that it started out in China and then kind of spread from there. But yet it seems like in some cases, we got it worse over here. I mean, what you're saying is is correct. It did start in China and it did come here, but I think New York, unfortunately, New York state had a delay in starting social distancing maneuvers. And keep in mind, population density in New York is so high that there's so, it's basically a Petri dish for a viral infection of this sort. Yeah. If you ever rode the subway in New York city, you'd know. And so it's, it's a tragedy what's happening in New York. Some of my friends have been recruited over there to help out um, because they're having a shortage of healthcare workers. Healthcare workers are falling sick. It's really scary. They're graduating, workers are dying. They're graduating med students they're graduating early. Medical students early to come in and kind of love that the fort. And that I would have loved that deal back in the day. They're having psychiatrists actually not practice psychiatry, but move to the emergency yeah. department and practice emergency medicine. Yeah. Um, I would love to see either of you practice emergency medicine. I think that would be hilarious. Um, uh, Dr. Hose used to be a neurologist. Did, hold on. Did, 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 but did she forget not only that, but we spent significant time in the psyche ER. And the psyche ER was often busier than the DEM, you know, if you just like pound for pound. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, not, I'm not doubting you, Armin, but... Uh, from what, from what I was told is that most of my dermatologists and um, psychiatry friends are terrified of ever being drafted into uh I would love lines. it. I would, I would relish the opportunity to be in that. That's great. No, we need people like you. Low drag. Oh, <laughs> our, our services are needed elsewhere, but we did, we did uh, practice together intern year medicine. Like we weren't on the same team, but we were on the same floor. Yeah. So, you, you know, and I, who did you and me? Us. You and, and uh, Ramey and I, you, you came from your neurology program, so you didn't have to do the internal yeah, medicine. I, didn't have to do intern I mean, I was never privy to your the strength of your clinical practice, so you can, I have no idea if you were good at medicine. Tour. At one point, we were peers in medicine. Yes, at one point. That Ooh. point is, has been long well, gone. Tori, <laughs> you and I were peers. <laughs> we actually, Tori and I actually saw a case together once in the ER. Yeah, great bedside manner, Dr. Hose. Um, I will say, though, uh, as a side note, <laughs> a, a question that I've been getting a lot from my friends and my family is about grocery shopping and what to do about virus that may be on your items. How do you disinfect your groceries? 
questions like this have been coming up all the time and there's so much confusion about it. I had a friend ask me if freezing the virus would kill it. The answer is probably no to that. We actually keep viruses in freezers when we need to store them for research purposes. So I don't think yeah. freezing would kill the virus, but um, I think that the most- a little, But a little autoclave action will do it. Yeah, so heat, high heat will. But I think that what people should know in case people are also wondering the same question is you should be more afraid of the people in the grocery store than the items that you're touching. It's still person to person transmission that predominates over contact transmission. You know, keep six feet away from other shoppers. Don't get in the cashier's face. You know, wear a face mask that's actually preferred. I would skip the gloves altogether because I've seen people wear gloves all day and think that they're magical. They that they're protected because they're wearing. Yeah, gloves. you don't know how to wear the gloves. It's best not to wear the gloves. Yeah, exactly. Just because yeah. you have a mask and gloves on doesn't. If you touch your face still with the gloves or with the mask on, that's still going to spread. Yeah, so you're still not touching your face. But above all, what I would do is go about your grocery shopping. As soon as you come home after you unpack the groceries, wash your hands before you cook. Wash your hands after you cook. Wash your hands. It's it's. It's possible, but highly unlikely for you to touch a piece of cardboard that had virus on it and then somehow touch your face or get into your mouth. Speak quickly to fomites. And fomite is... A fomite is a surface that could be potentially a mode of transmission. So could my hair be a mode of transmission? Uh, they could have come up with a better name than fomite. <laughs> I mean, potentially. But when we talk about fomites, the ones that are most commonly seen in COVID, at least, have been things like in the hospital doorknobs, uh, laptops, telephones, because people speak into the handset. Okay. So plastic. Plastic and stainless steel. The virus stays viable on them for a little bit longer than porous surfaces. So clothing, cardboard, the virus doesn't stay viable on that for very long, probably on the order of hours, but it's very hard to get COVID from something that's been sitting out for a day or three. Do I need to sanitize my Amazon boxes? No. What about, do I need to that. wash? Don't, don't wash your, I've had friends using Clorox wipes on the outside of their bananas. You do not need to do that. What about grain alcohol? Can I wash my bananas with grain alcohol? No. Is it, is it strong enough? I don't know how strong your grain alcohol is. Okay. <laughs> what percentage of vodka would I need to kill my... We need 60% alcohol. Okay. That's, that's strong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was this an off-tangent topic? Very much so. I'm, 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 I'm so you, disappointed. You can take that. Out. That you, you wasted our out. time. That was good. See, these, <laughs> these are the questions no, she was, gets posed. Yeah. No, and um, you got to have a lot of patience. So, the question I had, and I'm sure Armin, you you were thinking the same thing. What does this look like come fall when we're supposed to have football, or even before that, over the summer when sports are supposed to come back into the picture? You mentioned a stepwise approach to getting back to. You know, I don't think that we're going to have big sporting events have, you know, fans rush into stadiums again. I think that if we were to allow sports to happen, we'd have to be screening the athletes pretty vigorously and then maybe have games where the athletes are just there by themselves and the event is televised and there's no audience. I think maybe doing something like that would probably be the safest, but it's going to be really hard because if one athlete happens to be asymptomatic and, you know, interacts with other the entire other opposing team and his team or her team, it can be catastrophic. So um, it's going to have to, it's going to be a slow process. And to be honest with you, I don't think we're ever going to go back to normal 
I mean, COVID has fundamentally changed a lot of things about the way we live. I think we're going to have to adjust to a new normal where we are more cognizant of what we touch, who we interact with. And yeah, I think it's going to be an adjustment for all of us. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's the meat of this episode is like, what is a new normal look like? What do we have in store for the future? What can we do to adjust to this new normal? And you mentioned that it's yeah, going to be a month yeah, no, you're long sure, process. Man. That's absolutely right. Because, I mean, it's almost like, as uh, Dr. Yunus so eloquently stated, I mean, we kind of have to just presume that, you know, we're not going back to the way things were, right? So, so we should start kind of thinking about and strategizing now in preparation for, you know, what, what that will most likely look like, you know, and, uh, and maybe even have like maybe a couple of different contingency plans in place. Yeah. Just to be prepared for the unknown. For, yeah. For I mean, several, it's hard to be prepared for something things. that you don't know about, but I think this has really taught us a lesson collectively that we are not immune. I mean, literally and figuratively, we are not, how should I put it? We're not as strong as we may seem as a, as a, as a nation, you know, this virus has really got us on our knees and we have to be prepared for something like this to happen again. We can't allow something like this to devastate us like this has. I think a part of that, I know that there's been a lot of talk about closing the wet markets down in China. And I think that for a lot of people who see that as culturally inappropriate, I think that this is more of a public health issue. I think that's something that has to be done to prevent something like this from happening again. But we need to be prepared as a nation. We have to have the health systems in place to handle this. Yeah. One thing I've seen is this has kind of highlighted all the flaws we have um, in our society, specifically within the healthcare industry and the healthcare system, not having stockpiles of PPE, not our healthcare systems weren't prepared for the worst case scenario. Yeah. And a lot of things that we pride ourselves on being uh, capitalistic, but when you are are trying to haggle for masks as a hospital because a private company bought, you know, was able to pay a higher price for masks and then your hospital's out of masks, that's an issue. That's something that should be unacceptable. Well, you know, it's a huge issue. Um, You know, but another thing that I think is important to, to consider is the approach that that we as a, as a nation, particularly, you know, our, our, our nation political leaders decided to take to, to attack this thing. Like we pretty much looked at this issue, which, you know, major public health crisis as kind of like a healthcare issue, right? And approach it from that standpoint, I mean, you know, the top leaders and sort of spokes, spokes members of, you know, the, the White House enforcement or, or White House, whatever task force were two what MD, PhD types, right? Like scientists, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Bricks. And while these, I think, are, are clearly great thinkers, you know, um, great doctors, great scientists, great minds, I think it stands to reason whether or not these people are great sort of planners, organizers, and like, you know, logistics people, right? And the reason why I say that is because I feel like just as much, if not more than a healthcare crisis, this issue, this pandemic was a logistics and resource crisis, right? And there were a lot of like other like non kind of healthcare related issues that 
that I think were, were extremely important factors, extremely relevant to properly responding to this challenge. And it almost makes me wonder if like the, the people we needed to have on top making all the decisions and projecting, you know, how we were going to, you know, approach this thing should have been more like, like Jeff Bezos kind of guys, you know, or, or I'm not or sure women. about that. I don't know about um, that, Armin. I think you, know, you need people well versed in public health, like public health policy for sure. I'm not saying to exclude the the healthcare professionals. They have to be there. They have to be at the table. But the reality is that I mean, and I'm just going to keep it real. Like doctors are not well trained in leadership and management. You know, we're we're great thinkers. You know, we we I think we can we we can think on our feet well clinically. But clinical decision making is a much different scale, much different type of thinking and operation than large scale logistical operations. I think you know, it's a completely different. Yeah. Thing. But I think it has much more to do with just the capitalistic underpinnings of the society. Like at the end of the day, the bottom line, your t- your hands are tied. You have like these hospitals have to make a profit. Pretty much any entity within the United States has to turn a profit unless it's like fully supported by the government. Well, <laughs> That's and a good then, point, right? I mean, that entity always exists, right? But if you have the right type of plan and strategy in, in place, right, you could make a deal, you know, the government, you know, can make a deal with these, these healthcare organizations but to mo- try to keep mo- them afloat. Most of these healthcare organizations are run by MDs. They're run by business, business people. True. true. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm not, when I'm talking about the, 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 you know, the central, you know, sort of like decision makers representing the people. It's not the the guys in those offices at, at you know at Kaiser or wherever. It's the people at the essentially the White House. The Fauci, but I don't the I don't Turks, I don't think know, Fauci. I think his hands are, hands are tied. I don't I don't know. He doesn't have the freedom to do it. He all, he has to report to the president. Absolutely, mind, but he's he's the, the president's chief, chief on strategist on this. There are, uh, but it seems like Bricks and and Fauci are the ones you know kind of like. I think, you know, I mean, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. It's hard to say that Fauci or Bricks is actually the commander here. It, I, I don't know if we can actually speak to that. But regardless, there seems to be a mismanagement at some level, which is higher above than any of us are at. So it's really hard to point fingers or to say what went wrong, how we could have done this better. But it's very obvious that this could have been done better. It, it, well, so here's how I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it like, okay. So when these people get up and, you know, every day with this daily briefing, and, you know, and what they're doing is extremely important for providing, you know, comfort and security to the nation, you know, in time of crisis. So these briefings are really critical. And, you know, what I'd like to see is, you know, just like we have, an, a, you know, scientists up there giving the kind of healthcare public health narrative about the numbers and the flattening the curve and all that's great. I also want to see a person up there that can explain to me all the ins and outs. And it's clearly not going to be, you know, Donald Trump or, or, you know, any of, you know, his immediate political cabinet. I need to see someone that can get up there and really talk logistics, like how are we getting these tests delivered, you know, and, and, and where, how are we getting these, you know, ventilators, you know, to and fro, um, you know, how are we staging this so-called recovery process, getting the economy back to work? I mean, this is a lot, there's a lot you know, a lot of layers to this. And, you know, the, the, the healthcare thing, like I said, is one aspect, one element. But I just feel like we, there needs to be another person in this forum 
that can speak to a different flavor to what's happening here. Uh, yeah, I, I think in an ideal situation, there would be someone that could run point and do that. But unfortunately, I think part of it is because this is unprecedented and we don't know the trajectory of this. And I know that Trump has kind of allowed each state to kind of do it their own way. But I think what you're speaking to is ultimately in a situation like this where there is so, so much unknown, we need someone who's just steps up there and tells us what is currently known, what is not known. And then whenever any piece of new information comes out there, that's what creates that cohesion. At the end of the day, in order for us to rebuild most efficiently from this or, or bounce back, we, we need to be cohesive. We don't need to be divided as a country. And there is a lot of individuals out there right now that, that are putting more emphasis on all the jobs lost than the lives lost. And some people would say, like, how many jobs do we have to lose until we, we need to just get people back out there? And regardless of how many deaths occur, because we need to get America running again. And I think what factors into that is the social distancing has worked. We have flattened the curves and we are not seeing as many deaths that were predicted. And that's just more fuel to the fire of the people that said, oh, we didn't need to do this in the first place. So it kind of puts us in a tough position. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I agree. I think that I, I, we were all concerned about that. We're worried that people will feel, oh, this wasn't as big of a deal because, hey, we're not seeing the cases that were predicted. But it's because of, it's partly because of our efforts of everyone who's staying at home and really physically distancing from other people. I mean, we are so impressed in general how well people have been handling this that it, it's phenomenal. It makes us really feel Good like... Good job, America. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the healthcare work, we thank you because this has been such a boon to us, making sure that we can really take care of these COVID patients and, you know, not get us sick, not get our family members sick. Um, thank you. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we can bounce back from a portion of our society losing jobs. Those individuals can get support from their governments, can regain employment and get back on track to live a well and healthy life versus individuals who are are dying from this disease, there's no bouncing back from that. So ultimately, let's rebuild. Let's do it. How do we do it? We do it very slowly. Well, starts from within. It does, always. As always. Um, any other questions for our expert before we let her go? Yeah, what's what's on the horizon for you, Dr. Eunice? I mean, you know, you have this bright young career ahead of you. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Um, I accepted an academic position at UCLA, so I will be there for the next few years. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. We'll see how it goes. So I'll be, I'll be around. So you're going to get thrown right in there in, in the middle of this pandemic as an infectious disease doctor. You know, it's funny because before COVID, I really had to explain to people what it is that I did, what it, what was my specialty. And now people are like, oh my gosh, you're the person we need. And then, um, you know, part of me is like, yeah. Sorry. You're the one. You're like super, you're super. <laughs> suddenly, right now, I am man. suddenly very important. And people know about what my job is yeah. without me having to explain it. Can you kind of touch on some of the, the helplessness that you feel though, when you're in the hospital and you're seeing these patients? Yeah, I can actually. It's, it's really tough. I think as physicians, we want to do something. We want to feel like we're giving the patient a medicine that works, that we're doing something that'll help this person get better. And unfortunately, we don't have data on what works. All of the data that, we've have, that we have thus far on hydroxychloroquine or um, some of the other trial uh, regimens, 
it's not very strong at all. In some cases, we only have in vitro data, which is like lab petri dish data and no human data to really go off of. So, you know, the hydroxychloroquine is a thermicin thing that the president put on Twitter. That's definitely highly dangerous. And in fact, we're not recommending it at most of our academic institutions at all. That's great to know because I know several people have started taking that as an outpatient to treat. And it's it's really... It's, a, it's unfortunate that people man. are scared. It's, a, it's very dangerous. It's because it can cause um, arrhythmias. It can cause your heart to go into abnormal rhythms. And we've seen deaths because people yeah. took wrong doses or took something they shouldn't have. But regardless, I think that that's kind of the problem. Like some of our physicians want to give hydroxychloroquine to everyone. And that's, you know, it's, it's decided on a case-by-case basis. But at the end of the day, what we have to acknowledge is we don't know what the ideal treatment is. We have to just give supportive care, which means we'll give you oxygen. If you need enough oxygen to where you need to be on a breathing machine, we will do that. We've found that certain kind of treatment strategies tend to work better with COVID than others. But, you know, just supportive care from a physician standpoint, you know, we're not giving this antibiotics. We're not giving this an antiviral right now, unless you're part of a clinical trial. We feel really helpless. And the worst part is, when we have patients who are admitted with COVID and they're in the ICU, we can't allow family members to come see them. They are so alone. And the only thing they want to do is to be with the people they love. And we can't allow that. Um, we had a patient who was really not doing well. We called the family so that they could come and say goodbye, potentially. And the family mm-hmm. had to stand behind a glass door we only allowed one member of the family into the ICU, but we had them stand behind the glass door and just wave. Um, we are trying to implement um, iPads and video conferencing so that they can speak to their family members. We've been doing that in most of our big centers, but there's so much profound loneliness that goes on with these patients too. And then, you know, say you do get better, yeah. but you had the virus. Now you have to go home. You have to self quarantine at home with family members that you don't want to get sick. So it's been really psychologically a lot for patients to handle. It's been a lot for us to handle. I do think that we're going to have a lot of healthcare worker burnout by the end of this. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and it kind of leads in into, I think an important part of this, this podcast episode, which is the, you know, sort of the aftermath of all of this and what that could look like. But one thing that's been cool from like an interesting standpoint is to see like like doctors and healthcare professionals, people like me on the front lines, like on the front lines of a major issue, you know, like we're used to kind of giving that hero sort of rolled up to like firefighters, police officers, for, you know, first responders, uh, military members, you know, folks like that. Um, so it's kind of cool to be, getting some of that glory for the first time. But like in the midst of all that, obviously there's, you know, your emergency medicine docs, right? Like your intensivists, your your Dr. Eunice of the world's, you know, like- The nurses. Infectious, infectious disease, you know, doctors, the nur- obviously the nurses and the tech, nurses and, and all you know, of the healthcare workers. It's crazy to me who doesn't get appreciated are our environmental services staff, our housekeeping services at the hospital. Oh yeah, They're, all they, of those people, yeah. It's, it's incredible to me. We rely on them so much. And um, I know that we are getting a lot of the credit. I'm not, I, 
I'm happy to be honest. I, I love be, you know, people recognition, <laughs> like, you know, no one dislikes recognition yeah. and no one Validation. dislikes being, you know, thanked, but there are so many people who are helping us get through this. Um, well, that's, so. that's, that's, that's major effort. I mean, not, you know, hospital is a huge corporation. Yeah. Let's not forget the, the grocery store workers, everyone that's driving, like bringing you your Uber eats, people that are still out there working their essential jobs and interacting with the public. Yeah. Pharmacists. No, I, bank, I all I bank tellers. I try, we try to really, you know, minimize going Starbucks out grocery pharmacies. shopping. <laughs> the Starbucks by me is closed though. Drive through. Got that drive through, man. I mean, we're it's being money. all inclusive here, but just as a side note, you know, I, I think I'm trying personally to only go grocery shopping once a week and like only having one person go and leave the apartment to get groceries. But when I'm interacting with the cashier or anyone restocking anything, I try my best to thank them. Um, because just uh, going a little bit out of your way, you know, six feet away, <laughs> if possible, yeah, no, absolutely. but you know, to make, yeah. how creepy is it though that like, how creepy is it that like Dr. Eunice has been talking all this time and no one's actually seen her face. Well, we're going to have, is it, she could be like a like a head on like a yeah. Like a, You're really not know. missing out if, on much. If we do a part Talking. three, we're we're definitely gonna have to have her on the <laughs> on the video. But uh, I, I appreciate what you brought to the table today. At that isolation you mentioned, being kind of withdrawn and disconnected from society and from other people, is something that we're gonna Arm and I are gonna talk about later in this podcast. Well, so, the reason why I, I even brought up the whole thing about it being kind of cool is. Realizing that, you know, all my brothers and sisters, you know, in healthcare are, are on the, the front lines in the battle and the fight. And here, are, here we are, mental health guys. The hell, what the hell are we doing? Like, what are we doing? Man, no one's talking about us. Where is, where is our role? Like, where do we fit in? You're going to come in very handy in the next few months to year to years. I think next that few months to years. You you will probably have a surge of patients coming in with anxiety, depression, maybe even compulsive hand washing because they're scared. PTSD. It is. And and I do and I am already seeing it in myself. I'm getting paranoid uh, in the hospital wiping down all the surfaces. Not I you, can't Dr. relax. Are we have to No, you don't you don't have little, to worry about me, plan. but there's this low level anxiety that we all feel in the hospital every day right now. You know, we have to watch out for ourselves because we don't want to infect our loved ones. We don't want to transmit the virus to other people and the hospital is a hot, is a hot zone. So we are super anal about what we touch, what we interact with. So I think you will see a number of us coming to your offices soon. Yeah. It's so weird to think like the hospital is normally the go-to place to get healthy, get better. And now, right, right now it's, it's, it is, like you said, a hot zone. You go in the hospital and you're just working and you're nervous because you know, the virus is hanging out somewhere in there. Yeah. We know it's around, but again, it's not magical, right? It's not magic. It's still a virus. You can still wash your hands to protect yourself. There's, I think that's the fear too. People start thinking, oh, I'm going to catch COVID because I scratched the bridge of my nose and I only washed my hands 20 minutes ago. People are getting scared, but it's important to know that there's a lot you can do to prevent you from getting sick as long as you maintain a good distance from people and are smart. You know, actually, now that you, you opened up this kind of can of worms, I actually do have one other question that just kind of like randomly came to mind. So like there definitely seems to be certain cases, like most cases people catch this thing and then they just like 
had mild symptoms and, you know, quarantine, whatever, for 14 days, and then you're kind of good. But then there's these other people that seem to, to tank pretty quickly, you know, and they get into that, like, kind of res- respiratory distress cycle. And it seems like those particular patients are vulnerable regardless of age. Um, Why is it, it seems like there's just, like, these certain types of infections that seem to not go it's not no, the certain uh, types. I don't think that there is, it's, these aren't one-off cases. In general, we are finding that patients of all ages, granted less so in children, are getting pretty severe infection with the virus. Usually the incubation period is between four and seven days. And then you might have a few mm-hmm. days of asymptomatic shedding, like potentially 48 hours of asymptomatic shedding before you might start developing symptoms. And usually for the first seven days or so, Symptoms may be mild, but after those first seven days or so, five to seven days, then some people get get an increase in the severity of their illness and they may need oxygen. They may need to be put on a breathing machine or a ventilator. You know, it seems like those patients tend to have other problems, other medical problems. Um, Obesity is something we're noticing in the hospital. Um, Young folks with obesity and hypertension, diabetes, um, renal disease, so kidney Diabetes. disease. Most of our young patients who are coming in with that's severe so disease have been having these other oh. medical problems. Um, that's not yeah, to say- Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's like almost like, okay, so if you have a chronic illness, you know, and therefore already have some sort of like predisposition for that chronic inflammatory process to play out, it's almost like the virus kind of activates that you know, and just kind of triggers those processes in a way that almost becomes disruptive to even like, you know. Yeah, it's it's really hard to, we don't really understand the physiology of our immune response to the virus yet, but it seems like in certain patients, the inflammatory response to the virus is way out of proportion to what is actually going on. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's so many experimental therapies trying to modulate this inflammatory process, the immune system, and we don't know if they're really working or not, but we are doing clinical trials to evaluate that. It is fascinating from an an immunology perspective. There's so Um, much we don't know. And lastly, so I I think some of our audience may have heard of, of that respiratory distress illness that ends up ultimately killing people, which is called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Can you give us like the infectious disease specialist magical definition for ARDS? Um, so ARDS, like you said, acute respiratory distress syndrome, it's a pretty umbrella term. It can happen from a number of different causes. Um, you know, you can, ARDS basically means that you have low blood oxygen levels. Um, you have bilateral kind of infiltrates in your lungs. So both sides of your lungs have some kind of consolidation in the tiny airways. And usually onset is within a week or so. So those are the three things that make up ARDS. And so you can have a pneumonia, a bacteria that causes this. You can have an altitude, high altitude pulmonary edema that can also cause um, ARDS, which means fluid in the lungs because of high altitude. There are so many different causes of ARDS. And I think that we, the most common form of ARDS that we see is when your lungs become really stiff. And we see that mostly in bacterial processes. And interestingly, that's not what we're seeing with COVID. 
in COVID cases, wow. the lungs are still pretty compliant. They can they they open up, they close. So when we put them on these breathing machines or ventilators, we can actually increase the pressure on these tiny airways a lot, which we can't usually do with most cases of ARDS. Wow. So there's some so interesting having respiratory is very helpful. So does that mean that being on a ventilator is a really important life-saving inter intervention. I think that, that it's one of the few things we've got and it seems to work. Granted, when people are intubated and they're on the vent, they do need a long time to recover. It's not an easy process. Sometimes we have patients on the vent for seven days to two weeks, but it's what we've got. And I think that we really improve oxygenation in patients who are on the vent. We do our best. Um, we've also found that putting patients prone, which means on their belly, tends to also be better for COVID patients. Again, we're just noticing trends and we're trying to collect data collectively and share it with one another. So I guess all you can say is that it's this overdrive of our immune response that tends to cause the most damage to us and to cause the most deaths. Um, we have been seeing some deaths because of a cardiac arrest. So yeah, a lot to discover, a lot to figure out. Well, Dr. Yunus, I really appreciate your time for joining us. I know you got to get yeah, some rest. Yeah, you have blessed us tonight. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, Dr. Yunus. All right. Check her out on at uh, Infectious Ramey on Twitter. Do, oh, that's a badass. Do you feel me? Do you feel me? I know Dr. Yunus, she brought in the, the facts about covid we want to try to, uh, I don't know, weaponize you guys well, with hey, look, tools no, listen, listen. to handle this. Well, yeah, listen, she she set the table for the us. framework, the stage. Um, she did. I mean, she she said it. She made it clear. She was like, you, you guys are the months to years. You're the forces that take over after the dust settles. Yeah. You know? So, so the first thing I wanted to mention... Or the first thing I want to do is actually ask you, Armin, how have you been dealing with this? Like, how have you been able to, because your routine has been thrown off. We're both working from home. We're both doing telephone. I didn't know what my routine is done. You haven't been here. You don't know what, how I live. We've talked off, Mike. You know, we're, we're good buddies, <laughs> just, you know? So, no, no, it's been crazy, man. Are you kidding me? It's weird, right? I mean, to have a routine, you know, to have like kind of a process, you wake up a certain time. You, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you do all these things, you get ready, you have this whole like process, this like, you know, kind of like stepwise system, you know, every morning, right? Monday, Tuesday, you know, you know, what's up, you know, what's you going take on. that for granted and you you take it for granted. Like you never, you didn't, you don't realize it, you know, until it's gone. Right. But yeah, just having just like totally switch up that, you know, that system of how I get into the rhythm of my day, how I am most efficient in getting all the things done that I have to get done over the course of the day. And I've had to rethink the whole process, you know, working from home. And it's been tough. It's been tough. Yeah, I think I agree. It's the same exact thing. I think the home environment, work environment are two like separate entities physically, obviously. And when all of a sudden you have to do your work from your home environment that sends mixed signals to your brain. Almost. It's like when I go, when I'm at home, I want to feel relaxed. Maybe I want to crack a soda. Uh, maybe I don't want to wear any pants or maybe want to, I want to snack constantly throughout the day when I'm chilling at home on a Sunday. Like when you're at home, it's time to relax. And, and 
Yeah. A lot of people like to leave work at work. And when they're at home, that's their sanctuary. And now you have to mix those two things. So it, it was obviously, it was a huge adjustment for me. So I had to implement different things to kind of have a ceremonial start to the day. Maybe that's getting a coffee. Uh, maybe that is just dressing up as if I was going to work, even though maybe I'm just making phone calls all day, but I'm still getting all my yeah. button down shirt, my blazer. Um, and then I also no- noticed I was getting a little stir crazy staying in my apartment. So I'd go and take a walk at lunchtime, get a little fresh air, obviously social distancing while I'll do that. And then maybe having right. some ceremonial at the end of the day to, to signal the end of the work week. So then I could kind of relax, not to say I'm all tensed up during the work day, but it's just, I think it's yeah, just been different. those transitions. Exactly. It's, it's been different yeah, adjusting no, I, and being as efficient as you are in an office setting. Obviously, there's different hassles having yeah. to dial in with your VPN and block your telephone number when you're calling patients and different things like that. So it's been an adjustment. But I think mindfulness for me has been extremely helpful in that process. Huge. And I know huge. we've we've talked. Yeah, you about, mentioned it too. Yeah, we talked about I mean, that ad nauseum. You know the you know walking, taking those steps. You mm-hmm. know, like just count. You know that that process of being able to just like yeah. have a rhythm. You know, a pace, a rhythm that helps with mindfulness. You know, that's yeah. why we talk about breathing. You know, you can focus on something that gives you like a pace, you know, rhythm and um, walking accomplishes that. As yeah. Well. And I've, I've taken advantage of not having that commute time living in Los Angeles. These commute times can be over an hour. So I'm using that time to work out in the morning, maybe get a little yoga in. So it's mindfulness and working out at the same time, um, work on my breathing, but just trying to get a sweat in early in the morning has been really helpful for me. Yeah, man. You know, um, and I, and I, I definitely think that like the, the space is so important, like managing your space, your, your space around you. Right. So at one time, the space around me was very much about like living, relaxing, chilling at home, <laughs> you know, and everything was kind of laid out in that way. But like now I've had to like lay it out completely differently to be like functional space for work, you know, for like having everything in place in the right order and the right just locations and just access. So you, you finally got your uh, home office in order. Exactly. And it, you know, it's not even just the office. It's like, it's not even just the furniture, like the positioning of things or, you know, just click this, you know, uncluttering things. It's also like stuff that you definitely took for granted before, like internet speeds, you know, how good my Wi-Fi is, how good my laptop is, how good my, like the tablet, you know, do I have like the Zoom program or the Skype program? And if so, do I have the pro version? And, you know, it's it's like all these things you never had to even think about before. Like, you just, I've, I've had to buy all these new things and think about you know, how to deliver treatment uh, as a psychiatrist. You're from still home. treating all the same amount of patients. So, yeah, your, your job. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that... <laughs> That never slows down. Exactly, exactly. You know, you just got to get creative with, with this. And we and we have also had to kind of like re, rethink how we're going to deliver this ne- this narrative, you mm-hmm. know? How, how are we going to continue the conversation? Yeah, exactly. So you got to be flexible. And I think not only mindfulness, being a, like aware of your feelings and thoughts in the moment without judging them can be helpful, but having gratitude. Always. Like, like Dr. Eunice mentioned, like, just being able to to realize like we are fortunate to still have our jobs and to be able to work from home and to be able to get groceries delivered. So lucky. And so just being able to think that and know that 
kind of puts you at ease and allows you to be like, all right, I'm going to still function. I'm going to still kick ass at my job. I'm still going to get things done because these people need me and I can do this from the comfort of my own home. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, man. Like the first couple of weeks I was going through this, I was stressing out, you know, I was, I was frustrated, you know, because it was like things just weren't working out and, you know, I wasn't at my normal pace. I wasn't getting worked. I was getting behind, you know, I backed up. I don't know, man. It was like, I was just trying to figure it out, but you know, that stress was costing me because, you know, I'm just like, I'm thinking about how upset I am at the situation and not planning and not, and not, you know, trying to rethink this and Mm -hmm. find a better way. At a certain point, it just became like, I can't continue this cycle. Like I have to, get back on track, you know, I have to stabilize, I have to, I need to get some balance, right? And that's when gratitude came into the mix. Like once I started to realize, you know what, like you said, like, I don't know why I'm tripping. I mean, like, it's not that bad. You know, it could be a lot worse right now, you know, like take a step back, take a deep breath, you know, and like, just relax. And slowly but surely things started to work out a little bit better. Great. And it sounds like you had to take that step back, be mindful in order to realize, all right, I don't have control over the situation. I don't know how long it's going to last. These are the things I can't control. I can tidy up my workspace. I can buy, get all my technology right. So I can do this job easy. I can get up early and work out. I can do all these things. And then I have more control and I can do my job because that's the one thing you know how to do perfectly seamlessly. You're an expert is your job. Yeah. So, right. You simplify, you got to simplify it, right? Mm-hmm. Did you got to just get, get back to basics? Like, why am I here? You know, what is this? What are we doing? Like, let's let's just figure out like what's most important, what we need so, to get to the next step. Exactly. Let's talk about one of the other like stressful things for me, and I'm sure it is for you guys too. Is is that lack of just being able to socialize and be with people, like the, the disruption and your ability to just connect, um, just hang out with friends or family. Um, hug someone you care about. Those are other things we took for granted. And those are things that I've realized that it's been difficult for me. And I've made steps towards actually increasing my ability to connect with other people by Zooming and Skyping and FaceTiming as as much as possible. I'm, I'm doing more. I'm actually talking with more relatives and friends and loved ones more during this this stay at home order during this quarantine than I did before by doing like Zoom workouts gotcha. with people, game nights over Zoom just talking you know it's it's been yeah, a lot of fun I mean, ain't, not, <laughs> ain't nothing else better to do right now i mean there's just nothing i mean most most of these places out here are closed right so why not why not i mean you can schedule these things you know get everybody on the same page the great thing about the internet is you can reach a lot of people fast yeah you know you coordinate you can coordinate these things oh. and I have a friend group that they do 5.30 p.m. workouts every day and a, a, a different person alternates leading the, the workout. You know, it's, it's just, you know, it That's could great. be like a That's 15, 20-minute cool. workout. It's just an excuse to, to hang out and do something together with other people because that, that connectedness yeah. aspect, that's extremely important to get through these times because when you're isolated, you're withdrawn, you're, you're disconnected, and then you're at risk for a whole load of different mental illnesses and distress and dysfunction. It's difficult. It makes this situation a lot more difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, especially when you think about this particular like type of crisis, the way it's played out. I mean, 
you know, we, we, use, we were talking about that comparison to 9-11 earlier, right? And how the way 9-11 hit us, you know, it was just like a, obviously, you know, kind of a sudden, just one and done kind of crisis, right? It happened over the course of like a day or, you know, series of hours, you know? And then it was done. And it was like, dust settles, let's work on the recovery, right? This is not that type of thing at all. Like, we had like, you know, sort of like the initial stage of, of this, like, what, three, four weeks ago, right? That was when the initial crisis happened. And we're still in the midst of it. You know, they're still pushing back the uh, reintegration process. Like, yeah. we're still right in the, we're in the middle. We're, mm-hmm. we're, you know, and, and it's just been this very slow, insidious, kind of like methodical, just like encroachment upon you know, it's almost like, imagine like, you know, back in the movies, like where it's like this like shadow just slowly, you know, you know drifting over, you know, the, the screen. Mm-hmm. Our world isn't very accustomed to that type of tragedy, that type of death, you know, that type of just certain death. Certainly day not in, and day out. in our lifetimes. I mean, there's been the Black Plague back, way back in the day, um, Spanish flu and different, different yeah. pandemics, but nothing that anyone alive today has ever, ever witnessed and experienced. And like you mentioned with 9-11, the, the sports was a huge way of the country to recover from that. I, I have vivid memories seeing Pat Tillman, the Arizona Cardinals, running out onto the field with the American flag, the Yankees and, and Mets players wearing like the fire de- department and police department uh, hats on during oh, games. Yeah. So sports was a huge way for people to get back to normal, to feel a sense of pride in their country as well, but also just to get back to normal, like go to a game and have beer and have a laugh and sit down and, and have fun and, and, and move forward. So that's another thing that's that is unknown here is we don't know when sports are going to resume and it seems small it seems trivial amongst this whole thing but i do think sports in general is, is huge for our society in order to move forward and i think that 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 would be a, yeah. a step in the right direction when when sports can come back yeah they've made some you know small strides i actually uh took some time to check out uh some of the youtube clips of like that the horse competition yeah. It's not bad. I mean, yeah. you know, it's cool. It's, it's like, something. It's something. Yeah. It actually, you know, got me a little excited, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, hey, at least, you know, guys are getting out there and, yeah. you know, still having fun. And, you know, I think that what that effort demonstrates, you know, just a couple of weeks, they obviously put that together and it was a decent production is that we certainly can recover. You know, we're going to have to get creative, mm-hmm. um, you know, about how we do this. But, you know, you can imagine, you know, like take the NBA, for example. I mean, if they test every player, every player has a, a result. Or this could have been a great question for, for Dr. Eunice. But, but every, every player, you know, their status is known. They're either going to be right, negative or recovered, you know, I suppose. Um, you know, and they all sign maybe a waiver and agreement that, hey, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and play and. I guess maybe except, you know, whatever potential, you know, could come from exposure, obviously unknowingly, but, you know, you, you maybe have like select coaching, coaching staff and trainers or whatever on the bench, um, social distancing or whatever to some extent, but no fans, I imagine the stands, but it would be very different, but it would still be some semblance. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's so amazing though, to think about, 
the potential of what that could look like. I mean, not having like home court advantage to speak of, um, it really is going to change. Yeah. The yeah. And I, uh, that would be interesting. I don't, I don't even necessarily want to speculate, but yeah, it would, it would, and just think about like one player, Le- LeBron James, God forbid gets COVID, like then he has to sit out and maybe his whole team gets it. And what, what do you do then? So when, when a whole team and the team they play, do you have to stop the season? Cause now two teams are down to like their reserves because everyone, all the starters have, have COVID. So I think it's going to come back, but it's just a matter. It's not going to look the same, at least initially. But I think as long as we see something out there, like you said, this horse thing wasn't bad. It, it, it's a start. So, and I don't know if you've heard that Dana White, the, president of the ufc is trying to secure a private island so he can do continue to put on fights every week um we'll see about that that. (laughs) um he recently tried you know hey i mean they're good people are creative it's going to be interesting to see what people come up with the imagination yeah Yeah, exactly so i wanted to touch on um something that currently we're talking about what we can do like this we talked a little bit with dr Yunus about public education is probably the number one thing when you're going through a a pandemic is just to make sure everyone's on the same page providing clear and concise instructions. And at this time, I think all our listeners know about hand hygiene and social distancing, but let's talk a little bit about psychological first aid. And we we talked a little bit about this, about connectedness. I think when you're talking about psychological first aid, you're, you're talking about wanting to make sure people are connected. We mentioned before, use Zoom, use Skype, use the telephone, any way you can, just try to connect with people. Take this as an opportunity to try to connect. Um, We also, we wanna try to foster optimism that's a, that's, and which means like normalizing stress and grief, because this is a stressful time. Um, obviously, so many people have lost jobs. Some people have lost their life. Things have been disrupted greatly. And having anxiety and feeling that stress and feeling down depressed is a normal reaction to this. Like Armin mentioned earlier, he's been feeling a lot of stress. I've been feeling a lot of stress. Um, and we've had to make these adjustments. But within that, we want to create a sense of optimism. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And in order to get there, then you have to allow yourself to go through it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, Absolutely. you need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. But you have to allow yourself to go through it. You have to process these feelings. You can't hide them, avoid them, or oh, run away from speaking them. Speaking of avoid them, like alcohol sales have gone up like 50 to 100%. I mean, I get it. I get it. But that's not necessarily <laughs> the best thing. So simple things of how to do this is to try to decrease as much arousal as possible, stay in your routine like Arm and I did, includes keeping with a good diet, getting good, a good enough sleep, exercising, practicing mm, mindfulness. Sleep is key. Sleep is key. Yeah, because and, and this is, and because we're working from home, I definitely think that this is an opportunity for a lot of people to, to focus on the sleep thing in particular because, you know, given that you're not really having to leave the house too much, you know, especially, you know, in the morning and all that, like used to, I mean, we should be able to get this right. I mean, this is a good time for us to really try to get this sleep hygiene thing down. We have a podcast episode about this a couple of podcast episodes ago. We have two. Um, we have, we have two, we have, well, we have one where we just try to, you know, dabble and then we, we bring in the big guns. Yeah. So you're tempted to like, all right, I don't have to commute an hour. So I'm going to sleep in an extra hour and maybe I'm going to stay up later. Stick to that Mm -hmm. normal sleep schedule, eat your breakfast, work out, get a little mindfulness in. 
and then try to soak up this information to just put yourself in the best position to move forward. Um, and those are the things that we're trying to provide a little bit more clarity, clarity on today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like Dr. T was kind of touching on earlier, the biggest, one of the biggest battles is going to be within how we really like manage our space, um, the functional space that we have at home and how do we turn that into like a reliable professional space? You know, there's a, there's a lot of challenges. There are a lot of battles there. You know, you just got to, you know, take that one step at a time, right? And I get too overwhelmed to take it piece by piece. Yeah. Like Dr. Eunice said, the healthcare workers are on the front lines, grocery store workers. And these are the individuals that they're, they're, at, they're at risk more so than we are because we're able to stay home. Although I do go into the hospital on Saturdays to cover an inpatient unit. But when you're in the hospital, you're seeing this, you're seeing people like, Doctors do, you see people die, but you also see people die in isolation, separated from their family. Um, you're working crazy hours. You also have that idea when you go home, you don't necessarily feel safe around your family because you don't want to get them sick. You don't want to feel that guilt. So where's your, safe, man. It's, where's your safe space? It's kind of a, you know, uh, a mind strip. It's a mind game. And, you know, at times like this, when you start to combine that isolation that you mentioned, right? Um, the feeling of isolation, which can come from your profession, perhaps, combined with actual social isolation from the distancing. Let's say you're, you know, you're either an older person that doesn't know technology well, or you're a person that can't afford a lot of technology, and therefore it's hard to really do like the online you know, chat programs, the Skypes, the, the Zooms and all that. Um, I mean, isolation can really be, especially at times like this, with death all around us, sickness all around us. It could be the start of a really bad trend, a trend down the pathway of despair, right? And one thing we should all know about despair is, and this is from you know previous episodes, is it is one of the core features of the grief experience, right? And so it stands to reason at, at times like this, a lot of people are gonna be grieving, um, that despair will be part of the experience. You know, so if you now combine this other layer, grief and social isolation, this two hit of despair, you're getting pretty close, you know, to, I think, you know, reaching that threshold for depression. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to be, to try to control the things you can control, which is sleep, food that you put in your body, the amount of time you spend being mindful, exercising, if that's something that you enjoy. Um, those are the things that you can control. You can't necessarily... Maybe you don't have a lot of social support. You don't have, or you don't have the technology to do a FaceTime with someone, or you don't have anyone to call. So you're stuck at home. There's other things you can do. Like we mentioned, gratitude, mindfulness, and hopefully that gives you a sense of resilience that you can kind of get through this. That's what you want. That's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what, that's what, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And we mentioned right. healthcare workers, but there's other people that are at risk like the, the EMTs, the people driving the ambulances, 
the elderly, the immunocompromised, the individuals who are obese, who are, if they do get sick, are more likely to have that severe illness and need to be intubated. And if you go to the ICU and you get a vent and you are intubated, then you're at increased risk of, of delirium. And you're, you're actually at increased risk of, of dying if you are in the ICU. And you're at increased risk of getting post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. So it kind of it's a tough situation for a lot of individuals. Um, but then you also look at it. There's also individuals that maybe aren't directly at risk of getting the illness, but maybe they'll suffer consequences due to the what's going on. Well, I think about children and all of us in the psychiatry community, mental health community are anticipating an increase in child abuse and neglect because we hear a lot of kids, they go to school, that's their sanctuary. That's their safe place because when they go home, that's when the abuse happens. And now they're stuck at home with a, a parent who is under a lot more stress because maybe they're out of a job or they, they can't go to yeah. work. And then school lunches. Uh, a lot of kids, the only time they can eat a full meal is when they get their school lunch. So where do they go now for food? And then in our field, the mentally ill, individuals who already have anxiety, individuals who are already neurotic, individuals who already have OCD, people with schizophrenia who are paranoid, um, people with bi- people with bipolar who are on uh, a medication like lithium that needs to be monitored with blood draws. So they need to go into the hospital or someone who on clozapine who needs clozapine. to go to the hospital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or people on, uh, with substance use who, who need to take methadone. So they have to go t- to a clinic to get it every week. So they're, they're at risk as well. Absolutely, man. And, and so you think about these things and it starts to make a lot more sense with what Dr. Yunus, you know, was referring to when she mentioned how, you know, in the coming months, that's when mental health is going to really become critical to what we're doing. And, um, and you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Like a lot of the things, and we talked about this before, are a lot of the, the diagnoses, right? A lot of the conditions that we that we treat in mental health, like when you consider the diagnostic criteria, you know, most of them require at least a month of consistent illness, consistent disease, right? To really like know for sure this is what we what you're dealing with. And um, I mean, here we are right around that time frame now, you know, since all of this started. Yeah. Um, we'll see how things play out. We're definitely going to see a lot more adjustment disorder. We talked about that in the adjustment from injuries podcast um, episode where because of this event, people are going to start to have symptoms of anxiety and depression. We're going to see major depression. We're going to see generalized anxiety disorder. We're going to see post-traumatic stress disorder from individuals who have seen and witness death due to this. Um, yep. And these are all going to go up. I even, I, I've heard a psychiatrist talking about, we're going to see a boom of schizophrenia possibly in about 18 years because there's studies that show individuals, pregnant women who are under more stress and are infected with viruses and have more of an inflammatory response during a pregnancy is a risk factor for their child developing schizophrenia. So there's people that are speculating we in 18 years, 20 years from now, we may see a bump in, in the numbers of individuals who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Unbelievable. Yeah. So many things to think about. And uh, wow. When you, 
when you put all this through the lens of the possible changes to like sports and athletic competition as we know it, it kind of takes your mind to all these like wild, crazy fantasy type places in terms of like what this future experience could look like. Um, Cause like, we're, we're going to get through this. I mean, you know, we're going to, you know, our frontline warriors, they've already started to flatten the curve ahead of schedule, right? I mean, those projections that they had of like 100,000 plus deaths, right? Obviously, we're nowhere near that. Um, and we're not going to get anywhere near that this round. So that speaks to how well our frontline warriors have, have been able to attack this yeah. thing, you know, in this first run, this first go. So we're going to come into the fight next and we're going to clean every, we're going to clean it up. We're going to, to pick up the pieces and we're going to initiate the pathway to recovery, you know, as, as mental health um, in the psychological recovery. And, you know, once that happens and, you know, that, that light at the end of the tunnel becomes, you know, more clear and, and you'll get closer to that. Um, we are going to, to have to like start to, to think about how to get back to normal, how to, how that's going to look. And, um, if we do have to continue social distancing, right. In a significant way, how do we have entertainment value on the level and scale that it used to be right with athletes, but without like the type of competitions where you can really be like physically connected the way we used yeah. to be, you know? Yeah. Like, so you're, you're entering into, well, we got the horse where everyone's playing horse at their own baskets and filming it, but maybe some VR in the future. But I, before we, I, I wanted to like, just think about athletes, athletes we've talked about before, a lot of them playing that sport, being with their teammates, that's their sanctuary. That's their escape from maybe some childhood traumas or, or that's their identity. They're an athlete. And that's been taken away right now. A lot of individuals, some, I think Giannis even said he doesn't have access to a basketball hoop right now. So imagine wow. NBA players for a moment, you're in the thralls of your season. It's heating up. Yeah. As a matter of fact, those Lakers and Clippers and Lakers and Bucks games. And now all of a sudden it's, it's, it's canceled or it's postponed and you don't know if it's going to be canceled. And what if it starts back up in July? Like how to, what does that look like? How do you get your, how do you adjust to that? How do you get your mind frame back into that moment when you know, when you step on that court that there's no fans and I could get sick and all these things going on, that's a huge adjustment. So yeah. I think ultimately like what we talked about, mindfulness, gratitude, trying to keep as consistent and scheduled, scheduled as possible is how you, how you get through this control the things you can control, but athletes aren't immune to this. They're, they're maybe even more at risk because they can't, they can't play their sport from home necessarily. I mean, I think Devin Booker just won the NBA 2k tournament uh, <laughs> with the video games. I think he beat his teammate Deandre Ayton, but that's not the same as actually getting out there. No, of course not. Of course not. But I mean, you know, the, these are the kind of things we have to rethink, reconsider. Um, I mean, perhaps like you can envision a virtual form of, of a Devin Booker type player or a DeAndre Ayton type player, right? And the, these virtual like avatar-like characters are being controlled by the players, 
so they're thinking obviously their minds would be you talk about that black mirror episode aren't you yeah i mean the, so the player is thinking the way they would normally think but they're not using their body they're using this avatar's body right this virtual representation I, of them i mean i think we'll see that in our lifetime for sure that'd be interesting right yeah. um the cool thing about the avatar concept is we we'll to worry about like players injuries you know i mean players we could obviously like fix injury and the injury thing wouldn't have to be a thing you know unless we built it into the code like you'd have competitions with much less confounding factors influencing the outcome. But the con- the confounding factors, that's what everyone talks about. Uh, half of sports talk is about a blown call a ref made yeah. or about someone being unable to finish in the clutch. So I'm not sold on that idea yet, but that's something that needs to be discussed. Yeah. Yeah. You have to continue the conversation yeah. on that that's, one. Oh, for sure. I like it though. Uh, I think that's a future podcast episode. But I, I think for yeah. us, we're, me and you, we're definitely going to see a lot more sleep disturbances or a lot more anxiety, a lot more sadness, more in- substance use. We've already seen seen that a lot more um, changes in behavior. I think we're going to see a lot more like pent up frustration. These, this is what we're going to have to witness as mental health professionals. We're going to see adjustment disorder, like you said, PTSD, major depression, acute stress disorder. We're going to see it all. We're going to see increases in this and, and we're going to be here to, to try to help um, restore some normalcy. There's no try. Do or do not. <laughs> Classic. All right, man. There's um, no try. Let's see. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this bad boy up? And there's just always so much to talk about, you know, just so little time in the day, you know, so I guess we're just going to have to try to end the stigma and continue the conversation. There you go. Do you feel <laughs> not your shirt. Sure.